This is the Horse Radio Network. Coach Jen here. On this special episode of Stable Scoop, we step off of our regular roundtable format to bring you the story of an amazing horse and the rider that could handle him all the way to blue at Rolex in Kentucky. It's the story of the Grey Goose and his lifelong partner, Kim Wallace. How did Kim take that horse that was scared of everything and bucked off everybody to the top of eventing in the United States? That's what Glenn wanted to find out in this interview. The Stable Scoop Roundtable will be back again next month. And in the meantime, enjoy this wild story after we hear from our title sponsor, Kemen Equine. We've had no shortage of stress this past year, and a lot of our attention has been focused on maintaining our health and immunity. Stress and illness can actually form a vicious cycle in humans and also in horses. Elevated cortisol levels caused by stressors like extreme weather, disease, diet changes, travel and trailering, and more can all throw your horse's health and immune function out of whack. But did you know that you can help reduce the negative impacts of stress by feeding your horse chromium every day? By lowering the levels of stress hormone cortisol and optimizing overall energy use, feeding chromium results in improved body upkeep, health and immunity, performance and overall well-being. To ensure you're supporting your horse, don't feed just any chromium. Feed your horse the only FDA-reviewed source of chromium propionate on the market today, Chemtrace Chromium from Chemin Equine. Ask for it by name and stress less. Learn more about Chemtrace Chromium at Chemin.com slash Chromium EQ. That's K-E-M-I-N dot com slash Chromium EQ. Kim, what age were you when you found Grey Goose? I was 25. 25. You were a youngster. You were a puppy. I uh, was. Were you a three-day eventer at the time, you, at that time? No, no. absolutely no. Oh, that was just a dream of mine. Uh, it was, I, it, with every fiber of my being, I wanted to do it. However, there had never been the ability. I didn't have the horse. I didn't have the resources. There was none of that. But boy, I was on the hunt for a horse who could do that with me. Well, what had you done horse-wise up to that point? I had done trail riding. I had done some low-level showing in uh, hunt seat, in jumper, and in western, the Jim Canna, you know, my yeah, first yeah. horse. And I did rider pickup and barrel racing and pole bending and all that sort of stuff. Very but cool. my dreams were all about, I was doing eventing before I knew that it even existed. Because I would just go through people's garbage piles and pull out stuff and put that on the side of a hill and jump it. And then I found out there was a sport that did that. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Why were you living in Ireland in the mid-70s? Well, interesting story. Uh, my, I, when J Jack and I got married... A year before I graduated college. So he thought, oh, I'll just get a job with a local company while you graduate. And then we were going to move to Colorado. That was where we wanted to go. And the gentleman who owned the company that hired Jack recognized his amazing abilities. He, he graduated as an electrical engineer from Duke and kept promoting him up the ladder. So three years in and he said, you know, he came to Jack and he said, I would like to start a company in Ireland. And he said, I need somebody to run it. And would you like to do that? And 
so Jack came home and he said to me, you know, I, I have a really big question to ask you. How would you feel about moving to Ireland? And I was like, I am so in on that, which I think shocked him a bit, I think, because I was pregnant at the time. And, and he said, well, we'd have to move right after the baby's born. And I said, that's OK. We're good. Let's go. Ireland, home of horses <laughs> and eventing. And, and he said, but there's only one caveat, Kim. There's one thing I want you to promise me. And I said, sure. What? And he said, we're not bringing home any horses. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I did internally. Externally, I kept my face pretty calm and I put my hands behind my back and crossed my fingers and said, OK, <laughs> why would we go to Ireland and not bring back a horse? <laughs> Statement that no horse husband should ever make. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so did you had your fox hunted before you went to Ireland? No. Well, let me think about that. No. Did you try it? True? I assume when you got there. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. That was, you know, I was like, yes, I've heard so much about this. And it, yeah, I had not hunted before we went to Ireland and uh, we were, we, of course, one of the first things we did after we moved there was find the closest stable and make friends with those folks. And when they found out that we could actually ride, then, then when, when we said we wanted to fox hunt, they gave us two young horses, like, very young, like four-year-olds to hunt out there. So I was literally terrified. And I was even more terrified when it got started because every story you've ever heard about hunting in Ireland is true. No matter how, no matter how far-fetched and crazy, it's true. Not only was it terrifying, but it was also exhilarating. And I was very hooked. I was hooked. Do you think that your hunting experience there helped you handle Gray later? We'll talk about Gray's disposition later, yeah. but do you think that it helped you? Absolutely, yeah. because in, in Ireland, the horses are trained to just go. They go, and they have no mouths, so there's nothing you can do about any of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you learned faith and trust <laughs> in big doses when you're hunting an Irish horse across the country. And, and, you know, you come across everything. You just come across everything. And I mean, they jump off, off banks over stone walls onto a hard paved road and make a hard turn and gallop off down the road. I mean, these were just things that in the States one would never even consider doing with a horse. And they were, they just cope with it. They're amazing and they're agile. But yes, because I learned to be brave no matter what was going on and to stay on and realized that although I didn't have any control, the horse had some common sense. And I needed that with Gray. Speaking of Gray, so we're talking about Gray Goose. When did you first lay eyes on Gray Goose? Well, it, it, we, we were booked to, have, to go on a hunt. And when we arrived, I mean, we were used to seeing, you know, there was a, a lovely cobblestone yard there. And we were used to seeing the hunt horses that were going out that day being readied for those who had reserved them. But when we walked into the yard that day, it was a sea of horses. There were horses everywhere. And, and so we were a little surprised. And I I looked across this, these horses, you know, the backs and the heads, and there were just horses everywhere in the yard. And this, this head popped up, uh, uh, 
a black horse going gray with little squinty eyes and pinned ears and a, and a bump between the eyes and this like face of utter, how can I put it? Uh, unhappiness with the situation. And I, and, and our eyes connected and I knew him, I knew him because I'd had a horse before him who looked just like that with that same disposition. And that horse was terrifying also. (laughs) (laughs) And and I had to learn how to, uh, how to be with that horse. And it was only through grace that I did that because I was only 17 when I had him. And and the whole thing was just a divine setup that I was there, but I recognized that. And I thought, Oh my God. So I asked the people, you know, the, the two brothers that owned the place, I said, that horse, I said, what's the deal with that horse? And they said, Oh, he's a three-year-old that we're bringing and we're going to a young, a young stock show with him. And so I said, well, I, I really like that horse. And they said, well, he's going back out in the field after the show. And I thought, well, you know, we, we ride there every day. So I'll keep it. I'll keep track of him. So that's how I saw gray. It was a magic moment. It was very short and brief, but it was like, it was, there was a marker there. And he was three at the time. What make and model was gray. Oh, uh, he was seventies thoroughbred by, um, an American line, um, Hill Tarquin, who was by Hill Gale, who was an American bred thoroughbred horse and the dam is a mystery obviously she was gray because i went to see his sire who was a bay and they told me that gray had bold ruler blood in him because i don't people who know bold ruler horses know that they they don't they do not suffer fools lightly and then when i went to actually look up his pedigree it wasn't on the sire side so it had to be on the dam side hmm. so that one eighth was irish draft and how but tall was Gray? 16 one. 16-1. All right. Very yes. good. He projected 17 hands. But he was <laughs> or more. <laughs> or more. Depending on and the that day. that was only when he had his tack on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so at that time, though, you both got injured, right? Gray got injured and you got injured. And <laughs> This is true. So what happened to Gray and what happened to you? So the, um, because Gray, so we're talking the West of Ireland in the 70s, the early 70s. And so their um, procedure for unruly horses who were difficult to start was to just tack them up and throw them on a lorry with the rest of the horses and hunt them. That was what they did with them because they figured, well, you know, it's <laughs> they're, they're running. They can express their energy. They're going to want to stay with the herd. They've got obstacles coming up. They've got to sort it out. They're not going to be so busy trying to throw their riders, which Gray loved to do. So they took him out hunting and he was he was just out of control because that's just was the Gray. And he fell on rocky ground. And what they told me was he broke his knees. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. You know, I never x-rayed him, but um, obviously he was injured. And so they turned him out for another year. And during that year, I not only suffered a, um, a broken tailbone, but I also developed a serious illness 
and and a lot of things happened in that year. Our house caught fire. Uh, Andy, who was only one year old at that time, developed spinal meningitis at the same time I got sick. And so I went home to mother. <laughs> it's like, this is this is too overwhelming. I've got I can't do this. So I went home to mother and stayed for until I was well again. It took a while. And I had lost my confidence completely with between being weak and breaking the tailbone. But my parents had two very gentle horses. And I just said, okay, Kim, you know, pretend you're a beginner rider and teach yourself. Just start over. Start over. Don't do anything that brings fear. Just take one small step at a time. And when I worked myself up to being able to jump and go out on the trail and canter and stuff again, I said, okay, I'm ready. And we went back to Ireland. And and when we so And when we went back, I said to the stable owners, I want I want to start off on ponies because everything's, you know, got energy over there in Ireland. Start off on ponies that are low to the ground and then I'll work my way up. And and during that time, they had brought the gray back into the yard. And when I felt I could really ride again, I said to them, I would rather than you giving me young horses to ride. I mean, I appreciate that. It's kind of fun, but I would like one horse to work, just one horse to work on steady progressive training. And they said, oh, sure, you know, pick any horse in the yard. And I said, that one. And they said, any horse but that one. They said, no, 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 no. You don't want to ride that one. And I said, yeah, actually, I do. So they brought out this other horse, a bay with four white tie, who's gorgeous, a star and a stripe. He's very fancy, very American, you know, what the Americans go for. And they said, ride this one. I said, well, I'll ride them both. I'll ride them both. But I, I want to ride that gray horse. Gray horse had a reputation. He did. Yeah. He bit and he kicked yeah. and he bucked. Yeah. Riders yeah. had trouble staying on that gray horse. Yes, they, there was only one person who could stick him, and that was uh, John Lynch, the trainer at the barn. Very short, you know, like a he was like a jockey. He and he could, he could cling on to him. He he couldn't control him any better than the rest of us could, but he could stick him, <laughs> stay on no matter what the gray threw in. He was such an athletic horse. His bucks were he could he could bolt and buck at the same time. Most horses do one or the other, but Gray could do both. So we have this girl with confidence issues who just got back into riding, going back and saying, I want to ride the horse that's the most trouble in the entire barn. Sounds like you, Kim, actually. Yeah, actually. <laughs> I know you pretty that's well. Me. Sounds like you. <laughs> We're not going to do the simple route. That'd be too easy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so what well, happened? I just knew. Everything in my heart said, I, this, is, this is the horse. As crazy, as illogical as it is, that I had a, a heart draw to this horse. So you started riding him. I did. And? Yes. Yeah. And he dumped me every day <laughs> until I started learning. I, I learned. So I, what I learned was if I don't just get on him, if I lead him around and let him investigate everything he wants to investigate first, and then I get on, then he didn't try to dump me right away. So, so there he was, was spooky. A, Oh, he was, he was afraid of everything, everything. And it, it always, it makes my heart go so much that, that this horse who was afraid of everything became a horse known in the world for his confidence. 
that he grew so much with what we both went through and, and our learning processes and, and did that for me was amazing. He, but he was particular, I will say, you know, in Ireland, we, I don't know how it is now with modern days, but back then we did a lot of hacking on the road, excuse me, a lot of road work, especially with the younger horses. So Gray was four at this time. He was the one thing I could not hold him with was cows or Volkswagen Beetles. He, he, I, I had could, a Beetle. They make a noise. They make a noise. Yeah. And and I don't know. Other cars, he was cool. You know, that it was like a little bee going by. <laughs> Something about a Beetle that he would, I could hold him until it got even with us. And then, and then he'd lose it and he'd rear up and he'd pivot over the Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> Poor and driver. Come down on the other side. Come down on the other side in a full bolt for home. That's just was. <laughs> so how did you come about taking him home to the United States? In the year that I rode him and I paid to ride him in that year, Jack would always ask me when I came home. So how's it going with the gray horse? And I'd say, I'd shake my head and I'd say, I feel so sorry for whoever buys this horse. <laughs> I said, this horse is just a mess. He's a mess. He was so klutzy. I mean, he tripped all the time and and just didn't know where his feet were and he'd be fine and then he'd spook. And then and he he was very random about whether he would knock poles down or not. However, after riding him for a year and we developed a bit of a relationship and he started to get more balance when it came time to go home, I said to Jack, you know, with this tailbone issue I have and other back issues, my back, I actually sprained every muscle in my back when I was 20. So I already had back issues. I said, this horse is comfortable. He's got this long back and he's got a good suspension system and he does not hurt me when I ride. And I said, we know he can jump anything because there's no holding him in. I mean, this horse used to dump me at the early shows I would take him to because the barn would want me to take him to a jumper show. He couldn't handle another horse coming toward him. And so he would dump me and then he'd gallop around the grounds, jumping anything that got in his way. (laughs) (laughs) He could jump anything. And I said, and when nobody's on him, he's actually quite graceful and looks beautiful. So I said, I really think this could be the event horse I'm looking for. And, and it took a while and, and there's a whole story involved with that, but we did, we did buy him and he came home. Pardon me? Can I ask what you paid? I think, wow, it's been so long, maybe $2,500. I think that's what it was. Sounds about right Mm -hmm. for that day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then Jack said, well, if you're going to bring a horse home, I'm going to bring a horse home. (laughs) (laughs) I said, Cool. <laughs> I was all in on that. Yeah, because then you knew you'd have two to ride when he didn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I said, why don't we, why don't we bring home a mare from the same sire as Gray? And and then we could we could breed her. And he said he thought that was a great idea. And and the Burks found us a mare, or they may have even had one, a black mare by the same sire. She was a three-quarter bred. And so we brought the two of them home. There you go. Then you moved yes. to Virginia, you know, and actually the hills of Virginia. Yes, where, which, mountains. Yeah, which mountains. is well known for eventing trainers, uh, not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, again, another wise decision by Kim. She moves to the hills of Virginia, uh, where there's nobody to help her learn how to do eventing. Uh, 
you're dealing with this horse who's got he's got trust issues and all kinds of issues actually. Um, I heard at one point he did a record jump at the farm. Oh, he did. Yes. yes. Tell us about that. Oddly enough, for an Irish horse, there was something about fog that terrified the gray. I think because he was so vigilant about being injured, he couldn't see things in the fog. And so any sound that he didn't know what it was could send him into one of his mad fits of running and and that he would jump out. That's what he did. Actually, when we brought him home, he started jumping the fence in the lower pasture every day. He would just jump out and and he'd go roam around the countryside. <laughs> and then he'd jump back in. I learned not to freak out about it because he always jumped back in and the neighbors weren't complaining. So <laughs> we, you know, we lived in a remote area. We were surrounded by farmland. There wasn't, he wasn't going to get hurt anywhere. So <laughs> he also jumped the neighbor's cattle guards. They, they told me that was the one thing they said, oh, yeah, he jumps out cattle garden, comes in and eats, and then he jumps back out. They had no carrots left in the garden, and they wondered why. But. <laughs> Jack had a, a big business meeting. We were going to be gone for a week, and the neighbors always watched the place for us and fed the horses while we were gone. And I warned them. I said, so, uh, because it was fall. And I, in the time of year when the fog would roll in, and I said, if it's, if you get a foggy day and you turn gray out, I said, hang out for about 15, 20 minutes, please, afterwards, because it's very likely that he will jump out. Very likely that. And if he does that, then just put him in his stall for the day. So the foggy day came and our neighbors dutifully sat in the driveway, just keeping an eye because the driveway faced the whole barn area and the entryways to the pasture. And sure enough, they started hearing pounding hoofbeats, brum, 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 coming straight. So there were only two entrances to the pasture. Uh, one was a, a, a big, tall metal gate that was over a cattle guard. So the only way we put the horses in and out was through a very small people gate that was surrounded on, uh, bordered on one side by a very tall post that supported a, a cattle loading ramp left over from the former owners. And one of those... Um, Sheds you see that are that go from a low roof to a high, a high, you know, they're flat roof, but they go from low to high, and that's where we stored the sawdust. And and so Gray, as he came closer and closer, his only option he couldn't jump the cattle guard and the metal gate thing; it was just not right. So he couldn't fit under the roof between the post and the roof to jump the people gate. So he jumped over the edge of the roof. The whole building of the building. He jumped over the edge of the highest part of the building. And so they very carefully, these folks who were sitting in their vehicle flabbergasted. (laughs) You know, I thought he might jump out on some other part of the farm, but no, he chose the gate. And they very carefully preserved his hoof prints to show what a leap he made because he had to make quite the arc and where he landed in the driveway and with the dirt driveway. And he had this scratch across the middle of his cannons from scraping the tin roof as he went over. So the tin roof was nine feet high. So I figure he cleared (laughs) eight foot six. (laughs) 
And then you and, knew. <laughs> and then I knew. I said, okay, he can do this. Yeah. He can. I know he can jump with because he can jump cattle guards. And I know he can jump height. <laughs> Even at five star, we're not jumping eight foot six. So we should that's, be good. <laughs> that's right. And so I said to myself, okay, Kim, this is all on you. You have your horse. This is all on you. And that's when you took to learning eventing. But there weren't a lot of trainers in that part of Virginia in the day, were there? So how did you learn to do eventing? Three sources. There was a trainer at the college who, who knew a little bit about this. She also evented at the lower levels. Um, and every now and again, I would go to her. Uh, but Jack had done some eventing, low, or at least he had learned to ride in France because he, too, came from a military family and they got to go to France which was really cool. So he learned, that's where he learned to ride and ride well. So he knew some, something about it. And there were books. There were lots of books. And I got the book, um, Give Your Horse a Chance by Don Droody. I mean, we're going way back. And this book is like, I don't know, it could be 400 pages of small print. It is so specific about what you're supposed to do with all the parts of your body. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll learn from this. And I, I read all the other books as well. But I would put the book on the top of a fence post and I'd put a rock on top of the book so that it would stay there and the pages wouldn't turn. And I would take a line or a, a paragraph and I'd say, this is what I'm going to work on today. And I would just go back and check it when things weren't going right and go back and check it. <laughs> things weren't <laughs> Mary and I argued a lot, a lot. There was a lot of arguing. And, you know, in those days, Glenn, in Ireland, there was only two options for bits. There was a single jointed snaffle or a full bridle. Those were your options. So I only knew single jointed snaffle. That's, that was my whole world. And to Grey Goose, a single jointed snaffle. Yeah, you were trying just, to stop a train with a, with a toothpick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, exactly. But, but interestingly enough, the trip over from Ireland changed him in a good way. He stopped doing that bolting so much. I think he figured if he survived the, the plane trip, I mean, back in those days, it was an open, they were in an open stall and they got lifted and hoisted up onto the plane. It wasn't like today at all. <laughs> and, then, and then they had to, he didn't like water. He had a real fear of water and he had to walk through this little disinfecting pool. And the lady who traveled with them told us all this. And I think he figured if he survived all that, maybe the world wasn't quite as scary as he thought it was. <laughs> How long after you got him home did you start showing him, even at the lower levels? And I believe that fall, I took him to a novice event. We traveled to um, Northern Virginia for a novice event. So I thought, I'm going to go easy with this and let's just start at it may have even been beginner novice. I can't remember. But anyhow, he just flat out ran off with me. In that event, we chased a jump judge up a tree. Literally, <laughs> literally. Today you'd be red carded. <laughs> I know. I know. Leapt out of her chair and started up the tree. She thought that. And he would have. He Indeed, when he got locked onto something, he would run over anything in or jump it in his way. He was just flat out of control, out of control. So I thought, okay, these jumps are too low for him. <laughs> Gotta go higher. The problem with that is you had to do dressage at a higher level too, right? Oh, we were always last. We were always last in dressage, but we won. 
because he he would ace the cross country and the show jumping. So, but that was our progress. He was always last in dressage, head high. That's back and, low. and for everybody's benefit, back then you could get away with that, I and mean, you can't oh, really yeah. get away with that anymore. But oh, no, uh, no, no, and it's no, a little no. different. Back then, you could be you could be last in dressage and win the event. Whereas today, you'll never do that. Um, but that yep. that's interesting. So, how long? How quickly was his progression then? We did our first training in the fall of '76, and I was pregnant at the time. So I had to like throw up between sessions because I was, it was early pregnancy and I did a lot of that in early pregnancy. Um, and we won that one. And, and so then Brian was due in uh, August, uh, no, in July. And, and the plan we made was that I would ride gray as long as I could. And then Jack would take him over. And so the first event that spring he went out training level at a local event, thank God, because it was very muddy. And uh, in the dressage, Jack leaned in around a corner and Gray leaned in and boat attendant, mm. boat attendant right there, just boom, went dead lame. Luckily, our vet was at the, at the event <laughs> and he said, get him home and this is what you do. So for the rest of that summer... I was pregnant, so I just took care of Gray. I iced him and did everything the way the vet said to do it. And the way that stuff I had learned in Ireland to do, I did that as well. And and then Brian, God bless his heart, came a month early. So <laughs> that's a terrible thing to so say. So you got to start riding again. <laughs> I, got to start, I got to start riding in time for the fall. And Gray was sound, and, and we went back to training. I believe we did our first prelim that fall because training was, he was just eating it up and asking for more. So this is a pretty quick progression from, from not knowing what an event is or how to do it to training level. Right. Yeah. I kept, I kept just saying one step at a time, one step at a time when he tells me and the, and he, he was so vocal about it. Is this all there is? This is ridiculous. Come on. Where are the jumps? Show me. I want more. The, the first when we were in Ireland and and we went out on our first cross country course, Glenn. After about the third fence, he was already locking in on flags, and he was happy. It was the first thing a human had done with him that made him happy, and and it was the first time I'd felt him happy. The job he, he could understand, right? He understood yeah. that job. Yeah. He under this is what he was born for. And he's like, finally, finally <laughs> they figured it out. This is what I came here to do. And at the same time, there was this event over in Kentucky that had gotten started not too long before. Um, and that kind of became a even back then became kind of a big thing. Uh, and they had the world championships there. It was the world championships how it started, really. Yes. Uh, and you went and watched. Yeah, so we imported gray in 76, and the world championships were in 78. At that time, we were going prelim, and I had planned to move up to intermediate in the fall if gray was ready. And we walked that course, and I was in awe, just in awe. That Lexington Bank just called my name. (laughs) I was like... Give me a horse, I'll jump it now. You know, I just, I don't know, man. I mean, there were some jumps that also had me like, holy crap, I'm glad I don't have to jump that. But 
there were fences there that just, and so we walked the whole course. I mean, the kennels with the bounce, vertical bounce. I mean, there was all this new stuff on there that was so intriguing, such, so, such interesting puzzles to solve. And, and I said to Jack, I, when we finished, I said, so I don't see anything on this course that I could not jump as an individual fence. I said, we couldn't jump it as a course because we're not ready for that yet. But Gray could do every single fence on this course. And I said, we'll be back next year. And of course, he gave me the same look that he gave me, <laughs> has given me before, like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. He didn't roll his eyes, but it was an etheric eye roll. And, but no, I, it was like, okay, I knew, I knew we would be back the next year. And so the next year it was run as an intermediate. Backing up a little bit, wasn't that year you went to watch was when Bruce Davidson won. Yes, that yep. is correct. Yep. And the that heat- statue out in front of the stadium now, uh-huh. that's because of that year, basically, because he was the first real winner of what we today know as Land Rover. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rolex. <Yes. laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I, keep- I have such a hard time <laughs> with Me that. too. <laughs> yeah. Everybody who's of the old school does. Yeah. Yes. Yes. This is true. So, yes. And it was run in September, Glenn, in Kentucky, which is was just horrific. It was horrific. The heat and the humidity was, I mean, there was one, I think it was Warrior, a, a horse from England, an amazing event horse, who just, he felt, did he fall? I don't remember. I remember him lying, lying on his sternum and saying, no, I'm done. I'm done. He Too wasn't hot. injured. Yeah. He was just done. Yeah, he couldn't. He his His system was overloaded in 79, the year they ran it after the world championships, it was in June. They held it in June. So I knew that it was going to be the same heat and humidity conditions with a heat index. Well, well over, you know, it was in the nineties with really high humidity. So it was awful. And I'm not good with that. I knew gray being Irish wouldn't be good with that. I observed what happened to the horses who came from Europe. So I said, well, then I'm going to condition in the heat of the day. So we did all our conditioning runs. I got, you know, opened the Chronicle and read what other people did for conditioning (laughs) at that level. And we did our conditioning runs between noon and one o'clock in Virginia when it was just God awful hot. And we learned the two of us that that we would hit a spot where it didn't feel like we could breathe anymore because we had the heat and the humidity, that same conditions. But if we kept going, we'd get a second wind. So then before uh, that, before I went to the vet box very early before on the cross country day and I asked the vet, so like several horses had gone and I said to her, so what, what temperature are the horses coming back with? And she said, 106, 107. Mm. I said, what do I do? Because in those days, you never put water on your horse's back after they had run. You yeah, never. Yeah, you know, that was you know. a thing that didn't happen back then. Oh, no. And all the stuff we do now was not done back then. You know, you just didn't do it. And so I said to her, this was Kathy, Catherine Cohn, amazing woman. And I said to her, what do I do? And she said, you get a muck bucket and you fill it with ice water and you grab every towel you can find and all the people you can find. And the, the second you get in and you're out of 
out of the weight box. She said, you strip his tack and you start throwing cold towels. You have one person on one side throwing a cold ice towel on and another taking it off and just keep replacing all over his body. I said, on his back? She said, yes. (laughs) I said, okay. (laughs) So we did that. (laughs) And and he did. He came in at 107, but he was a-okay because, you know, we did that. So how'd that first year go at, in Kentucky? You said it it, it wasn't a five star then. It, you, you're right. No, it was a, no, no, no. It, it wasn't was a, even a. It was an intermediate. It was intermediate. And they yeah. run as an intermediate. Yeah. We had an an abbreviated roads and tracks, and we had steeplechase. I couldn't wait to get out there on the course, and and every every step of it was my, a dream coming true. We got to jump the Lexington Bank, and it was awesome. And we got to do so many of those fences that had been in the world championships. And, and we're flying along and Gray, we're about three quarters of the way through the course and Gray's like, I'm having trouble breathing. And I said, you bet me too. I'm having trouble also, but remember we've done this before and we'll get our breath back. And he's like, you're right. Okay. And on we went and, and we were the only horse and rider to make the time that day because um, my husband, Jack, had told me that somebody else had made the time and so it was possible. And so I just never took my foot off the gas (laughs) and he had it. He had it there for me. And lo and behold, we made the time. And it turned out that other person hadn't actually made the time. It was just, he was mistaken. So you came in second that year. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. And then you got a letter from the U.S. equestrian team. I did. Oh, no, I did not get a letter. I got a telegram. (laughs) For those that are younger than 50, you can look that up. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I I had a telegram delivered to the door. And, you know, of course, in those days, if you got a telegram, it usually meant something horrible. Yeah, somebody had died or you owed money. There was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the only and reason I you got op- a telegram. <laughs> I opened this up with trembling hands in my little tiny country kitchen. And here is this telegram from Jack LaGoff inviting me to the training session that winter. And I can't even, I can't even describe what came. I mean, I was pretty much out of my body at that point. It was delight. So then you did, you, you ended up training with Jack LaGoff, who was like, who is, you can also look him up. He's like a legend in, in uh, U.S. eventing. Yes. 1980 was that Jack LaGoff, in his brilliance, decided, uh, so, because 1980 was the year of the alternate Olympics. Oh, and right. so, yes, we, uh, it, and so you guys can look that up too, <laughs> why we had an alternate Olympics. And, and Jack LaGoff, in his brilliance, decided, well, you know what? He got he 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 asked the committee and got the funding to take two teams to Europe. There was the alternate Olympic team, and then there was a younger team, the rookie team that he wanted to take to the Lumulan three-day event that was being held the week after the alternate Olympics. So we had the alternate Olympics in France, and then the, um, the those horses that competed and some of the riders there went home. And the rest of us went on to Germany. So this was a trip of a lifetime. I mean, we were in Europe for a while getting accommodated and uh, 
the horse is getting accommodated to the weather. And we, oh, it was so amazing. The places we went and the, the places where we stayed and the conditioning for the horses was phenomenal. And so I got to experience the whole team event. He was so wise, Jack. You know, he, he always liked to see who, who's, what horse and rider team could navigate the terrain and the jumps at specific competitions. So he, this was two years before the next, before the world championships. And he said, all right, let's jump this course. So we got to go to Lumulan that year. And we got to go to Lumulan in 81. And then in 82, we went back for the world championships. How'd you do with the world championships? We came in third. <laughs> <laughs> which which uh, then, you know, when, after that world championships is when uh, you really started to work on dressage, right? Before, before the 82 Rolex. Was that it, is correct. Was it Jack yeah. that encouraged that or? No, 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 it was obvious. We needed to up our game in dressage. Okay. Because at the upper levels, going to compete in Europe, you had to do well in the dressage. So that was very important. So the winter of, of uh, 1981, I said to Jack, Jack, if we're going to do well in the world championships, then I really have to up my game all the way around. Now, now also in 1981, I had met Sally Swift. For the mm. first time, that was in the spring, and Sally Swift changed the entire dynamic, well, of my life actually, but also Gray's and my relationship because she taught me how to ride in a much kinder, softer way. She taught me a way to ride that did not hurt me, and it did not hurt Gray because I was so tense trying to protect my own self from the broken tailbone and the back injuries and the knee issues and all the other issues I had. And she taught me how to ride so softly. And from that, that first lesson I had with her, Gray, Gray said, oh, well, this is cool. I can do dressage because we both hated it up to that point. And all of a sudden it became something fascinating and doable. So that winter, we decided to invest in lessons and the whole winter uh, that I wasn't at the training session with Jack, I, five days a week, I had lessons. I had three lessons with Pam Goodrich, a classical dressage instructor. And I had uh, on, on three days, I did that. And the other two days that were in between, I worked with a show jumping instructor who had ridden in Europe with Ryder Klimta and learned from him and had, and he would apply everything we did in the dressage to the show jumping. Huh. And he, sh he showed me an exercise that, that taught Gray that maybe he should listen to me from time to time <laughs> when I asked him to do something different over a fence. <laughs> he just set up an exercise and said, now you're going to go through here. And he said, you're going to give him a long rein. I want you on the buckle. It was a it was this whole series of bounces. And I said, but but that's not gonna go well. And he said, I know. He said, you just be prepared for whatever happens. Poles went flying. And it was just, it was some it was really brilliant because all of a sudden Gray learned maybe I had something of input that would be helpful to him. So though that winter was the big change. So then you headed off to Rolex again in 1982, which, as my count, is your fourth or fifth time there yes. uh, with Gray. 
And did you have any inkling before 1982 that this was going to be a good year? Did you feel like all that dressage training and everything was going to come together? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I was really working for this with every ounce of my energy. We all were. The whole family was working toward this. What happened to dressage? I don't remember. You placed third in dressage that year. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and you had a new top hat. Oh, that's right. I've got it now. <laughs> <laughs> so a kind, a friend of ours, a friend of ours said, what could we do to help you in this quest for going to the world championships? And I said, well, I really need, I, I don't, I don't have a tailcoat and I don't have a top hat for the dressage. And so he offered to pay for that. And so the tailcoat was tailor-made and then, but the top hat didn't didn't arrive until the morning of the competition. And when I tried it on, it was too big. Makes it tough to see where your uh, transitions are. <laughs> well, well, I said, so then I said to myself, I mean, you know, I, I, by this point, I've become the queen of adaptability. I'm like, okay, now what? How are we going to make this work? <laughs> so so uh, Jack helped me and my groom helped me and and we hairpinned it to my hairnet and, and put a lot of hairpins in the hairnet, but it started to come loose during dressage. So that was fun trying to balance that on top of my head and ride Gray's impulsion. You did pretty well. You did third. Maybe it helped you not focus so much on dressage, you know, and, and freak out that the top hat may have helped you in a way. Good point. Yeah. That is a great point, Glenn. It took you out of your head, literally. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so then, then you, so you're third after dressage, and then you yes. head into cross country. I know you yes. remember cross country because oh, something yeah. happened at the very beginning that wasn't so good. No, it wasn't so good. So we we got through phases A and B and C, and we're all ready. And yeah, and that's long format for again for those. <laughs> that <don't> that's right. <laughs> long format. Yes, we were carrying. I think he was carrying twenty, at least twenty pounds of lead that day if not more. Okay, and, so that's something I want to stop on. Explain that because I don't think the people today are going to understand anything you're talking about there. Okay. Do you, so back then the the rules were even different. So like we had to weigh in with so there ha- oh that was it. So there was a handicap. Everybody right. had to weigh like a at jockey least Yes, yeah. like a jockey. Everybody had to weigh at least 165 pounds with their tack, which did not include the bridle. So with your saddle, your breastplate, your girth, you had to weigh 165 pounds. And so for us slight women, we had to carry lead. And so that meant you had to have a whatever, you had to go to somebody who made you lead weights. You couldn't just go out and you know, order them from Amazon because we didn't have that kind of stuff back then. So somebody had to make you lead weights and then you had to get a saddle pad made to carry the lead weights. And that went over your normal saddle pad and your saddle sat on top of that. You were in cross country day and you, you did A, B and C and then headed to the start box. Yeah. So there's the 10 minutes in the vet box and your groom is the one who, well, I assigned that that um, job that somebody has to keep track of the 10 minutes and, and get you to the start box on time. And, and, and my groom 
I learned was really not all that reliable about this kind of stuff because <laughs> she spaced it. And all of a sudden I hear people yelling number, whatever it was, and my name, Kim Allness. And I'm like, are they calling me? And somebody said, yes, you're, you're late to the start box. So Jack threw me up real quick and I gathered my reins and got my feet in the stirrups and headed on over there and, and took off. I was, I don't remember how many seconds late, maybe were 30. 10 seconds late. Was it 10 seconds? Mm-hmm. Okay, good for you to know all this stuff, Glenn. <laughs> so we were 10 seconds late, which is a lot. That's a lot in cross country. <laughs> it's a lot in cross country. And Gray was just absolutely flabbergasted because I kicked him out of the box, which I never normally did. I trained him always to stand. You had to start from a standing stop in those days. You know, nowadays they just walk in and go. Yeah. But no, we had to go to the line in the box and stand. And then we went. And so I had trained him to that. He was a good boy about it, but I didn't normally kick him out of the box. (laughs) I was just like, great, we got to go. I mean, my heart was pounding like crazy. And boy, he caught on to that. And he's like, really, really? I can run right from the beginning. And I'm like, you go, boy. (laughs) (laughs) And we never took a a breath for air or anything. He was fit. He didn't need it. And we just went full or boogie all the way around that course. And he was, he was so happy to be free to just run and fly. And it was, it was the course of a lifetime. Because it put you in first place after show or after cross country. It did put us in first place. Yes. And isn't that interesting? So, so the hat that you had just gotten that didn't fit, put you out of your head there. This took you out of your head, and you just let you trusted the. You did what you did in the early days of Irish hunting. You just yes. let the horse take you. Yes, you didn't get in that, his way, Glenn. That's an amazing insight. Yes, you're absolutely right. So sometimes those things come together and happen for a reason, right? I mean, in this case, uh, they both happened for a reason. But then you went into show jumping, and like today, in those days, you were last because you were first. Yes. And uh, no pressure there, is there, going last? (laughs) (laughs) And it was hot and it was humid. And I kept, you know, I only had a wool coat. (laughs) (laughs) You were dying. (laughs) They didn't wave coats at Rolex. (laughs) Well, no, 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 no. There was no coat waving. Well, the worse than that, I kept feeling like I was going to pass out. And, And Jack just said to me, Kim, you can do this. You will not pass out. You will get this done. And I'm like, he's right. I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) And you did. And and, well, and you know, Gray was not 100% reliable on the show jumping. He's Irish. He didn't care if you hit the pole, didn't hurt him any. (laughs) And and the show jumping for that was an amazing show jumping course because we had a grabin where, you know, which is like it's like a coffin jump, but on show jumping with poles that fall down. And we had uh, we had to gallop through a uh, canter through a little pond and then jump a vertical. I mean, there was elements of cross country on this. There were liver. There was a Liverpool combination. There were all these odd. And in those days, the arena had um, contour to it. It was grass, and then there were slopes and ups and downs, and it, it wasn't like it is now. And so he makes it through the entire course clean. 
And I'm like, oh, God, that last fence is headed toward the gate. This is where he would always go flat on me. And and I'm doing my very best to all my show jumping lessons to half halt and gather him and everything. And he, boy, did he rattle those poles. And I thought, I, the crowd will let me know. <laughs> Don't look back. <laughs> Just get through the finish line. <laughs> and, you did. And, and they roared. And I'm like, oh, thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you, God. And then I was like, okay, you got to weigh out. You got to weigh out. Don't forget to weigh out. Because I once watched Denny Emerson at a three-day event. He was so happy and excited that he had he had won the, uh, I don't know, yeah, he had won the event and he forgot to weigh out. And so I, I learned from that and I'm like, go way out, go way out. Then you can celebrate. <laughs> we couldn't talk to anyone either. You couldn't say a word to anybody till you'd weighed out. There was a lot to remember. And did Gray know he had won when he went back? Oh, to did he know? Oh, he yeah. knew. He was so proud to lead the victory gallop because Gray always had to be in the front. Always had to be in the front. He was, he would have made a great racehorse if he'd been a purebred thoroughbred. He had to be in the front. That he was very proud, very proud. Yes. As if I don't mention this, there are a lot of girls in this country and ladies who were girls at the time that are going to be all over me. You didn't make the Olympics in 1984, which then lets you go to the Kentucky Horse Park for the filming of a movie. Yes. (laughs) If I don't mention this, I'm going to be in so much trouble. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Sylvester. Yes. You were a stunt we were the, double in the movie Sylvester. Yes. Yes. What was that like? Was oh, it-, it was a whole new world and, and quite the learning curve for Gray because we we went there and I said, so how's this going to work? And they said, well, we're going to focus on one jump a day. And I said, okay. And I said, the first, I mean, we didn't Do they know, know that's how, not how it worked. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. And, and so the first, jump they decided to do was the giant's table and and that was six feet wide across i mean it's a it's a huge obstacle and and normally it would be like number five or six or at least that you know where you'd warmed up there was nothing to warm up on out there in the field except a picnic table (laughs) i mean a normal picnic table (laughs) so um yeah it was a real learning curve and great so I would, I did jump gray over the picnic table a few times and got him revved up. And he's like, why, why are we revving up? What are we doing? Cause there's no Nigel. Yeah, There was there no start box. <laughs> no start box, no people. There were people, but they weren't like standing around, you know, it was like, what are we doing? And I said, we're jumping the giant's table. So he's like, okay. And he comes down to it and he does this, you know, his normal um, conservative leap over it and takes off down to the Jenny Lane crossing. Cause that's what we always do after the giant's table. And I'm pulling him up and he's like, what are you doing? Wait, wait, I don't know why we're starting in the middle of the course, but there's a whole nother course to jump. And I'm like, no, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so he learned over the days that we only did one jump at a time. And the editor, the film editor who did the, the little rush, whatever they call it at night, he, Actually, the director came to me and he said, Kim, he's making this look so easy. Can't, can't you make it look more difficult? <laughs> I said, no, I can't. I said, this horse is known for making it look easy. I said, you're just going to have to use different angles or something. 
I said, I did I they can't make you make jump it more than once, or was it always just once they got their? No, one it was more. It, it was no, more. we jumped up multiple times. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What do you think when the film came out? Well, I was quite excited about it, and of course, it's a very inspirational storyline, which actually parallels mine in many ways. In the fact that you know we did go to Rolex without a lot of preparation, and we did it with a lot of help from friends and other well, people. I We've think some a, people thought it was about you, right? Some people did. Yeah, yeah but I was not an orphan cowgirl no. <laughs> <laughs> out west in Texas. <laughs> But it, there were many parallels to the story. So, and it is an inspirational film. And it must have been cool to see yourself in it too. Oh, well, yeah, very exciting. And to I see mean, the Grey Goose. And to see Grey. And, to, and, and so what's really kind of cute is uh, Grey knew Nigel. He knew if Nigel was at, a, at an event, it was a big time deal. And Nigel did come and announce for the movie. So Greg got pretty happy when Nigel started being on the loudspeaker again. <laughs> what, at what age did you retire, Gray? 16. And what did he do after that? I just kept working with him. I had wanted, what I, my, my plan had been to do endurance riding with him since, since he, was, that was, he was that kind of horse. And he loved, loved, loved to go exploring. That was, that was his passion in life was to explore new things. But I misheard because there's a difference between endurance riding and competitive trail. And in one of them, you cannot wear boots on the, you cannot put boots on the horse. They have to go bare legged and gray could not do that in his hind legs. He, he interfered behind. So I just, uh, we just did fun stuff at home and until he was 26 and then I had a car accident and couldn't ride him for a year. And in that time, arthritis set in in his spine. So that was the end of riding. But I still did stuff with him every day. And he lived to be 30, which is pretty good he, for him. He did. He yeah. mentored Gideon Goodhart, the, the young horse coming up in his, in, in his wake. He was a great mentor. And, and we, were at a, we ended up in a wonderful place where the, they let him have, Bray had the run of the farm. Only they had to rescind that after a while because his Irish humor got a little much for the borders there. <laughs> he, he liked to spook them. He liked to. He he would come from the woods behind the indoor arena and gallop through the indoor arena and burst out where people were riding. He wouldn't do it if somebody was in the indoor, but if there was nobody in the indoor, he'd burst out the other side of the indoor and startle the horses that were in the outdoor. <laughs> And he would turn the lights on at night and he figured out how to get into the feed cans, even when they were bungee corded. And at that time, he didn't have many teeth. All he did was just pretend to gorge himself and leave <laughs> grain all over the floor. So he had to <laughs> he had to go back in the field. <laughs> he, he does sound like a character. But isn't it true that, I mean, when you take a look at all the great uh, eventing horses of the day, they all kind of had an attitude. Oh, absolutely. It takes that. It yeah. takes that kind of personality to get to the top. What's if I if you had to narrow it down to one thing with Gray that that was the thing that was the turning point? What was the turning point that made him into a champion? Physically, the turning point came when I met Sally Swift. So that's physically and emotionally it came 
it came when Gray decided to trust me. And, and that came through Andy, our daughter. He loved her with a passion. In fact, she couldn't even be around during his dressage test because he'd focus on her. Mm. So because I came with Andy, he decided to accept me. And we developed this trust in one another. So those two things hand in hand. Your fondest memory of the time you had with him? There's one thing that stands out. It could be serious or funny or. No, I would have to say it was that cross country round at Rolex in 82, but also the cross country round in at the world championships in 1982, because that was total trust there. So he died at 30, uh, probably from a stroke. How did he get to be buried at the Kentucky horse park at the head of the lake of all things? Yes. Well, I had called um, there. I had called Janie Atkinson and I said, you know, Gray is getting into his late 20s. And I know, I mean, this horse is beloved by people all over the world. I said, I I don't want to, I would like to bury him at the horse park. And she explained that it wasn't possible to bury an entire body at the horse park. And so I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do I'm not going to do that option. She said, but it would, we would love to have him here. She said, so I thought, well, what if I cremated him? And in those days, there weren't a lot of crematoriums big enough to Mm. take a horse. Um, But we did find one through the help of friends, found one in New Jersey and, and they came out and they were able to cremate him. And then another friend who was a woodworker made a beautiful, beautiful mahogany box with brass fitting for the ashes they decided to have a horse cemetery, you know, there above the, for event horses. And, and that's where they chose that grove of trees above the head of the lake. And um, there was gray. And then maybe Volturno came first. I think um, the black German stallion who was murdered at the um, um, quarantine station when he That's came right. over here to be bred. Yeah. And I think he, he was the first horse there and then gray was the second. So every year I see pictures and I think it was again this year where people visit it and then send you pictures. When, yes. When they, they go do. to Rolex. Yeah. Yes. And, and Rolex is so, they just put beautiful flowers on all the horses' graves. It's such a nice thing. And, and many times people leave peppermints for Gray because he was such a peppermint. That happened thing. this year because I saw people write to you and they had put peppermints on the grave. Yes. Yeah. Yes. True. Everybody it, it, says they have a lifetime horse. Everybody has their lifetime horse, whether it's a trail horse or, you know, a, a world champion. And, and you certainly had yours. But it was only because... You really took a chance. <laughs> yes, I believed in him. Yeah, I believed in us. I believed in us. This was a passion. It was a burning. It was like a calling, Glenn. I had to do this. And even Jack Lagoff wrote him once in the winter. He, he wrote him for an hour to try to help him understand dressage. And, and when he got off, they were both lathered, literally lathered in sweat. And Jack was dripping in sweat in the middle of winter in Massachusetts. And he said, He just said very quietly, got off and he handed me the reins and he said, you two have an agreement. And I said, yes, we do. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) I listened and and did my best to uh, um, accommodate what he needed. 